about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth... Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating they ran out of the house, naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all of this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. We'll continue at 23 to the end of the chapter. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man made gods and no gods at all. 
There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro and, the, and, uh, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Good evening. My name's Mike, one of the pastors here. Great to church with you tonight. If I don't know you, I look forward to chatting afterwards. In fact, if after tonight you have questions or would like prayer, I would love to catch up also. There's a lot going on in this passage, isn't there? It's a kind of a, it's a crazy passage. Uh, we've got magic and uh, miracles, evil spirits, temples, gods, riots, politics. It's all there. It's exciting. It's a long passage, but it's kind of easy to listen to because it's just this full drama, this soap opera of the Acts. But behind all of this drama, there's, there's actually a real story about power. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. The Lordship of Jesus, the power of Jesus versus everything else. That's what we're looking at tonight. This drama really will unfold as Jesus exposes his power and dethrones every other power in their lives, in our lives. To kick us off, uh, Ephesus, it was an incredible place to live. At the center of it, was this temple, the temple to Artemis, the Greek god of uh, fertility. And uh, 
it was, in fact, this was kind of one of many temples. Each time the temple got built, it got built bigger because it was such a wealthy and to-do kind of place. It's very, very happening, very spiritual. Artemis was the god of fertility, and you would go to Artemis with kind of your rituals and your kind of sacrifices, and you'd, you'd kind of be, you'd seek her blessing on, on children, but also kind of on the fertility of your land. And so that if you ended up with children, if you ended up with kind of a, a harvest that kind of brought in a great produce, you'd, you'd kind of, you'd want to give thanks to Artemis. And so Artemis became not only uh, known for fertility, but also of, of wealth and prosperity. And so here's this kind of, just this pumping city of spirituality, of wealth, of affluence and influence. And it's the city that kind of Paul walks into with the good news of Jesus. How would you go climbing those steps as one man or one woman with the good news of Jesus ready to do your missionary work? Would that kind of be a daunting thing for you? I think it would be for me. And uh, as was Paul's custom... We're just going to spend a little bit of time setting it up. Uh, as was Paul's custom, he went into the synagogue to chat with the Jewish people. They knew the backstory of Jesus, the Old Testament. They were looking for the Messiah. And so he starts speaking with them persuasively. And after two months, it doesn't go heaps well. They're, kind of, it's, they're described as obstinate and maligning the way, ascribing evil even to the good news of the gospel. They put their foot down. They're not going to listen. And despite Paul's persuasiveness, they don't want to have a bar of it. That's kind of, this is kind of the first power dynamic at play here. Uh, the Jewish people say, no, don't want a bar of it. Uh, but that's not really an ancient kind of power play. In fact, it's just a thoroughly human power play. As I think about how we do this in modern discourse, I see it all over the place. And so does Tom Ballard. I saw him on the tonightly kind of little video on my Facebook feed this week. And, and he asks the question... Why is modern discourse so full of obstinance and maligning such that he wants to, in his own words, swallow his own face? Very Tom Ballard way of putting it. His conclusion is the left, and you could substitute city dwellers, I reckon. He's a big fan of the left, uh, but I don't think we need to say left here. I think we could say city dwellers, we even. We lack nuance, he says. We're too reactive to criticism and we're morally puritanical. It seems that when you're convinced of your own way, you stop listening to other people and you become obstinate. You become uh, a maligner, a jerk, really. How does Paul respond to that? It's pretty simple, isn't it? He just kind of goes on, moves on to the next place. He goes down the road, even, to a hall of Tyrannus, uh, a local philosopher who's got the kind of the morning and the evening peak hour slots, and he takes the crumbs in the middle and has two years of fruitful discussion. Luke almost sort of skips over it. He just gives one and a half verses to this bit, uh, although it was not much. But really, this is the longest time Paul has to freely go about his missionary work. And in that time, so freely is that, and kind of so many people coming to Ephesus, that in that time, the whole of modern-day Western Turkey hear the good news of Jesus. That is amazing. That's more than just a power of persuasion. That's a work of God that so many would hear about the Word of the Lord. But I just want to drill into not just hearing the Word of the Lord, but how that Word, sharper than any double-edged sword, would penetrate that culture and the powers that were and the powers that are today. That's kind of my driving question. How will the Word of the Lord penetrate into our culture? Firstly, 
I really want to dig into this uh, first kind of crazy part of the story here, this explicit spiritual story of kind of, you know, the seven sons of Sceva, that kind of business. It's a bit of a strange read, yeah? When you're kind of reading over that, you're like, that's a little different. But the thing is, of the seven different suburbs I've lived in in Sydney, Newtown is the most spiritual. Would you agree? Newtown is a thoroughly spiritual suburb. I've even lived down in God's country in Southo, and I reckon Newtown is more spiritual. See, and I, I, I know this because in my conversations with people, I hear all the time about people tapping into the good vibe spirituality of Newtown and all that's going on here. Um, you know, I've chatted to people who say, look, I don't really know what's out there, but it's kind of, there's something, and, and I'm sort of, I'm exploring it, and it's feeling good, and it's working for me. Or perhaps even just lying in the roots of the Morton fig tree, just, just here. People kind of vibing into Mother Nature or something, I don't know. Uh, one night in the graveyard, uh, a month, month or so back, in the middle of winter, Stevie from, from this congregation ran a worship night, and uh, he was setting up shop, and there was a dude just kind of uh, winter baking on a gravestone, as you would. And uh, he saw this kind of these Christians setting up shop, and as the worship night kind of unfolds, he kind of, he vibes in, he's kind of like, what's going on? He's really interested. As I chatted to him, not heaps interested in Jesus at all, actually, but he stayed for the whole night because he was just so spiritually kind of like, wow, I love what's happening here. <laughs> I don't think he left with a lot of Jesus, but he certainly tapped into some spirituality. And even if I could be a little bit cheeky, even our city's obsession with sex, it's not just a materialistic act, it's a, it's a highly spiritual act from the great philosopher Bruno Mars. He sings, your sex takes me to paradise. I'm born again every time you spend the night. It's a thoroughly spiritual act, is it not? How will the Word of God pierce the spirituality in Newtown and Erskineville? How will, how will it reveal the powers and idols at play in our world? How did it happen in Ephesus? How did the Word of the Lord pierce the the powers of play, the culture of Ephesus, and we kind of get the answer. It's got something to do with some magic handkerchief. <laughs> did you see that? At the, at the kind of beginning of this, of this bit here, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and uh, aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and the illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. And you're like, okay, <laughs> what is going on here? Now, there is a magic, kind of like magic tricks. I've been watching uh, Magic for Humans on Netflix. Anyone watching that? Anyone? It's just me. Check it out. Yeah, yeah, how good is it? We should tell afterwards. That's great. Um, They say no trickery in the kind of camera work, but I watch it and I'm like, that is messed up. It's kind of devilish what's happening. But in the end, I know it's trickery. I know there's some kind of trickery happening in that. But there is a magic in Ephesus that is deeper than the trickery of Netflix, a way of coercing the spiritual powers through rituals and sorcery so as to kind of produce the ends that you would want through some kind of incantation. And the people who subscribe to that in Ephesus would have seen the magic handkerchief and gone, yeah, I kind of, I get that, I get that, that's a very kind of Ephesus thing. Except as Luke recalls it, the Christians don't really kind of worship the handkerchief, they're not really about the handkerchief. In fact, Luke makes it explicit, it's God doing extraordinary miracles here. But in this kind of humorous little part that follows on, people see what's happening. They also kind of, they want to mimic that. They want to tap into the success of that. And so we get these, these Jewish uh, kind of exorcists, uh, as they were kind of very synchronistic within the culture, and, and they see what Paul is doing. And they're like, we, we, want to, we want some of that spirituality. We want some of that power. We want to be able to wield that. 
And so they kind of go about their kind of exorcist business and they say kind of in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul, they try and domesticate God and get him to do what they want. And in this humorous little section, the demons lash out. Who are you? I know Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? And give them such a beating that they leave naked and ashamed. Can God be domesticated? Absolutely not. (laughs) It is a crazy passage, is it not? Just in case I've lost you, and kind of like as you look in on this and go, that that is such legend, (laughs) such myth. Let me tell you this story. At the beginning of this year, I had a guy reach out to me uh, in the community. He knew that I was a pastor in Erskineville, and he had some connections uh, with us as a church. But he also went to Sunday school way back. And when I met him, uh, I was just told that he wanted to meet me as, a, as the pastor. And when I met him, he's kind of like classic alpha guy, looked like no fear in the world, like just got life in control. And he starts telling me his story. And I tell you that he looks like he's got no fear in the world because he comes to me terrified. He, he comes to me freaking out about some stuff that's happening in his life. He tells me that he's been having these really vivid nightmares that kind of are really messing him up. And I'm like, okay. He tells me he's hearing voices audibly and kind of uh, just some really messed up stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'm still getting a bit weirder. And then he says, at night, stuff moves in his house. I was like, okay. And then he says, I've been dabbling in these occult practices. And I was like, okay. So we're, we're talking about the real spiritual realm here. And he remembered from his Sunday school days that there was a name that even the demons feared, and that was the name of Jesus, and he wanted to be baptized out of fear of what was happening in his life and what he tapped into. He wanted the power of Jesus. We had the opportunity to talk about the gospel, the good news, and how Jesus really is powerful. It was incredible, but it gave me an insight into there really is a spiritual realm. We need to be careful with the things that we're playing with in our spiritual part of the world. But just as this guy saw the powerful name of Jesus, the people in Ephesus who saw these guys get whipped by the demons who feared Jesus, everyone came to realize that it's not just a a spirituality to tap into, but there is a who behind that, a who that is more powerful than every other power at play, even the demons. And, And when people saw that, they realized that Jesus cannot be domesticated. He cannot be wielded through incantations, through rituals. He is personal, he is powerful, and he is Lord. And verse 11, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, a holy, reverent fear, an awe of God. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. As this kind of unfolds, you see that as Jesus' power is revealed, people glorify him for who he is as Lord over all, but they also begin to realize, even the Christians, they begin to realize that their life practices weren't actually lining up with their fresh appreciation of who Jesus is, because they had a fresh look at their life, and they say, actually, there's some stuff here that that I need to to bring into alignment with Jesus as Lord, and the alternate powers at play, these kind of, these scrolls, these sorcery scrolls that they've had in the cupboard, kind of, you know, just maybe dabbling a little bit with on the side, they realize there is no power left in those, none at all, because all power belongs to Jesus, and and they publicly bring out, they publicly confess what's been going on, sort of on the sides of their lives, and, and they bring it out into the open and voluntarily burn millions of dollars worth in modern day equivalency 
scrolls that were for sorcery but are now emptied of value because of the power of Jesus. See, their entire value system is transformed. What was expensive is now a piece of junk ready for burning as they bring everything into alignment with the power of Jesus. And these were believers. They had this kind of revival going on. They had a fresh appreciation of who Jesus is and a fresh appreciation of their own life and what that next step of faith would look like. And the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You see what's happening here? This kind of Ephesian revival, Ephesus revival, centers around Jesus, not only revealing his power, but in revealing the emptiness of every other power, whether demonic, spiritual, or idol-based. We've seen Paul go into this very spiritual city. We've seen him persuasively argue for the good news of Jesus and discuss with people for two years, and we're seeing the drama of Jesus' lordship unfold in people's lives. And in these crazy circumstances, this little kind of weird story of kind of uh, this demon possession and kind of exorcists and these Jewish people trying to exercise, we see Jesus' power revealed and people hold him in awe and respond accordingly. A girl in scripture asked me this week, I reckon she asked me the question of this generation, this new generation that doesn't know Jesus at all, kind of has no backstory, no Sunday school experience. She says to me, Mike, why would I want to meet this God? Do you reckon that's the story, the question of the generation? Why would I even want to meet this God? The answer is, not only is he glorious, but every other point is everything else in this world is sinking sand. Not only is he glorious, but everything else is sinking sand. And in my scripture class, I'm trying to get her to appreciate who Jesus really is, just as the people in Ephesus got a glimpse of that. But but I want to press further. I want to press into this a bit more. Not only is there a spiritual drama kind of on on the real explicit surface here with kind of demons and possessions and all that kind of stuff, there's a, there's a more sinister spiritual dynamic happening in this part of Acts that I reckon really taps into where we are at in 2018 in this part of the world as well. And I want to un- sort of unpack that in, in the next part of the story. Now, it was inevitable that sooner or later, the kingly authority of Jesus would challenge the ways of Artemis. It was inevitable there was going to be some kind of clash of the titans, some, some religious power play. But I'm not really interested in that dynamic because there's a deeper spiritual dynamic and it centers around Demetrius and his heart. Demetrius was probably the head of the blacksmithing guild or something like that, making little trinkets in the honor of Artemis and selling that and kind of capitalizing on the spiritual narrative of Ephesus. Yeah, but he's not happy. He's not happy with the gospel that Paul is peddling. And he sums it up like this. Paul proclaims, God's made by human hands and no gods at all. And he's right. He's summed up Paul pretty well, actually. Uh, God's made of human hands by his hands are worth nothing at all. And the New Testament will agree that God's, that these idols are nothing because Jesus is Lord. He is the only God. But yet, the reason why God has a real problem with idols is the same reason why Demetrius is flipping out. Because of the value that he has ascribed to idols. 
because of the value he has invested in, in his business, his finances, his value in society. And he sees kind of what Paul's gospel is going to do to all of that, obliterate it, and he is fearful of the loss of power in his life, his loss of status. The reason why God is concerned about idols, even though they are nothing, is that they steal his glory. As people ascribe his glory to the things that they value. And Demetrius is not really interested in Artemis, although he claims he is. He's more interested in his own glory, in direct competition with Jesus. I don't see Demetrius as kind of a righteous head of the trade union, kind of fighting an injustice here. I see him fearful, and I see him whipping up a bunch of fearful people into hysteria as this chaos unfolds, as people flock into the theatre, not even sure why they're there, but they're all kind of wrestling with this idolatrous thing in their heart. The result is chaos. In complete contrast to the Christians who burned valuable scrolls, he burns public order for the sake of what he values, his namesake. I was reading from Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods book, it's a great book and worth reading, uh, about the idol of power. Seeking after success, winning, influence. If that's your idol, your greatest nightmare is humiliation and your problem emotion is anger. And as we see the angst in Ephesus, way beyond, way out of proportion than what is necessary, we see the idol of power at play. We see a city that is angsty, is hungry for power. And we know that power corrupts, but perhaps John Steinbeck puts it better. It's not that power corrupts, it's that fear corrupts. And particularly the fear of a loss of power. And herein lies the power of idolatry. Not just that we would set up a competitive glorification with Jesus, but that we would define ourselves in the pursuit of something and fear the loss of it, and make everything about us. If you define yourself by career goals, for instance, if you set up that as an idol, you will not find happiness until you succeed, and you'll fear constantly being overlooked, and that will define you. You will worship it, and it will crush you. If you define yourself by body image or the approval of others, you won't find happiness until everyone acknowledges your image, approves you, and you'll live in crushing comparison. If you define yourself by the need to help people, even, you won't find happiness until everyone values your help and depends on you, and you'll fear being left out. Often we don't even realize our idols. I reckon Demetrius would have been completely blind to the idol of his own status and business and finances. But the thing is, as we trace our defining fears and motives, if we let Jesus actually help us and trace those fears and uh, defining factors in our life, we'll find idols tucked away in the crevices of our heart. Just like the Ephesian Christians who saw Jesus afresh and so freshly appreciated what they were hiding away in the closet, so to speak. But the thing is, this kind of, this deeply spiritual act of idolatry, it, it really runs deep. If, for instance, I was defined by career goals, 
I couldn't wake up one morning and just say, I'm going to do life a little bit differently. I'm no longer going to be defined by that. The Bible says I'm, I'm stuck in my idol worship. I'm a slave to sin. And so how will we be redeemed from this slavery? Whether spirituality, whether occult practices, or man-made idols, Jesus reveals their emptiness and disarms the powers at play over us and replaces it with a more brilliant and a more beautiful power. And that power is completely different to every other power revealed in this world. For he demonstrated his power in the cross. He chose to use his power, not to exert himself. There is Jesus, the Son of God, in this world. So easily could he have said, I'm powerful, lap it up. Instead, he chose to use that power to serve, to sacrifice, and to save. And as Paul kind of so beautifully puts it in Colossians 2, he, he talks about how Jesus has, has died on the cross. You were dead in your sins, in your idolatry, and now because of the cross, he has forgiven you. He has made you alive in Christ. He has cancelled the written code and all its judgment and condemnation upon you. He has freed you from guilt. He has freed you from every defining power over you. And he most beautifully puts it, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through the lens of every power of this world, how foolish is the cross? How foolish is the way of Christ? Until he rises from the dead and is vindicated as the most glorious power that ever was and ever will be. If you want this power of Jesus in your life, you don't need to struggle for it, to fight for it, to go into the amphitheater all angsty and rioty. We see something more beautiful and it's in complete contrast to the end of the story of Acts 19. We go back to the beginning. And we see Paul, who meets these disciples of John, and he asks them a really leading and pressing question. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He asks them, do you know Jesus? Have you been baptized into the Holy Spirit? They say, what Holy Spirit? And as he tells them about the one that John was pointing to, the one coming after him, that is Jesus. And as he explains that on hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. So simple. He asked, do you believe in the one, the one true Lord, the one that every spiritual power, the one who John was talking about, everything leading into the Lordship of Christ, will you believe in Him and be filled with His Spirit? Today, if you want Jesus in your life, if you want to know and be known and be filled with Jesus and His power and His Lordship and His Spirit, you can go, you can let go of everything else that is filling your life with angst and stress and frustration and worry and hopelessness and believe in the One and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with His power. You'll be filled with forgiveness for everything you've done wrong. Be set free from the power of guilt and sin. 
and be made alive in Christ. If you've already believed in Jesus for a long time, I want you to see how the same Spirit works mightily in the circumstances around you, in illuminating the Word, in, in speaking into your life through, through others, in the way He moves about you in your daily life. Maybe you might end up with the same experience of the Ephesian Christians, as the Spirit worked mightily around them and even worked and orchestrated the circumstances of these, uh, these kind of Jewish uh, exorcists and the whole demonic scene, the Spirit was so in work, work in that that Christians saw Jesus afresh and they were revived in their heart and so feel refilled with His presence by the Spirit that they resaw their life and said, actually, there's stuff I need to deal with here and bring that into alignment with Jesus. The Spirit will not only reveal our idols and convict us of where we are falling into error, but help us see Jesus afresh. The Spirit will bring you increasing peace in the chaos of this politicized life. And the Spirit will give you boldness and wisdom to know when to stand up and when to sit down, when to go forth in boldness and when to withdraw. I wonder if He's speaking to you now. Is He highlighting a part of your life that needs to be brought into the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He highlighting an idol that you've been hiding in the cupboard that's still of some value and still playing out its power in your life. Then pray and ask Him to reveal not only that idol, but the good news of Jesus that you've not been tapping into. That you might see Jesus' power over that part of your life and find a better story, find a better power. Yes, Newtown and Erskineville need to see the true object of their spirituality, the Lord Jesus. Yes, Newtown and Erskineville need to see the emptiness of the idols in their lives to find the one and true living Jesus. But it starts here with us. That God would so move in us by His Spirit that we would lift the name of the Lord Jesus on high and glorify our beautiful God, Father, Son and Spirit. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and how he has revealed your most beautiful power. A power that you chose to demonstrate in serving, in sacrifice and saving us. Father, would you reveal in us the powers that we are still putting into play that compete with Jesus? Would you show us the idols of our hearts? Would you reveal the, the true depths of, a, of the spiritualities of this world? And would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? That we would bring everything we have before him to live under his power because he is good. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.